Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. To chapter 6, we'll read together and study verses 5 through 8. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. If you're visiting with us this morning, the custom of our church is to study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. And that's for a few reasons, not the least of them is this, that we believe that the words and the order of the scriptures are inspired by God for the benefit of his people. And so... If the Lord in his wisdom gave verse 2 after verse 1, so we'll study verse 2. Because the Lord is wise and good and he knows what we need much better than we ourselves know. And so we've studied Romans chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. As we come to Romans chapter 6, we continue in Paul's great study of theology in his letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 5 has been called the book of justification by faith, that is, how a person may be made right with God, and Paul answers that question. It is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then here in chapter 6, he is explaining what it is to live a life in the grip of that grace that saves Christians by believing in Jesus Christ. And so let's read God's word in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have, uh, been ra- if, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures, the 66 books where you display to us who you are in your eternal person and in your divine heart of love for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would rule over us and in us this morning as we hear and study your word. That, Lord, you would help us to receive your word unreservedly. Oh, Lord, that we would be drawn to you, oh, Father, that we would be stirred to faith in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been some weeks since we've been in the book of Romans. We've had a holiday season and a very short break from this book. And also last week we had a guest preacher and our former pastor, Stephen Walton. But here we are again, and we're studying the scriptures together. And one of the wonderful things that I want to do is to remind you where we left off. That's terribly important, especially because here in Romans chapter 6, we are 
in the midst of Paul's argument. He's explaining to Christians how they should live in light of the grace of the cross of Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul, anticipating confusion from other people, asks a question. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And you see, this question has some background, and it's in chapter 5. If you look back uh, just a few verses, you'll see why somebody might say something like that and why Paul would expect it. In verse 20, we read, Paul write, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so it makes good sense. It's quite logical that somebody would read that, that If there's sin in quite a lot of it, that the grace of God is even more than all of our sins and that it abounds, or as John Murray has said, it super abounds and it's not just more than the weight of our sin, but it's so much more. It exceeds it greatly and specifically and wonderfully that a person might say, well, if when I sin it gets me more grace, how about I send some more to get even more grace. And you hear the logic of the sinful mind that if I can even do a little bit that the Lord will give me even more of his grace to cover over a great measure of sin. And this is something that we often tell ourselves. We think on the grace of God and the love that he extends to us and we say simply God is so gracious that he will always forgive me therefore I can sin and do whatever in the world I want however I want as much as I want and that's a really backward way of thinking isn't it if you've received salvation if you've received the love of God why would you then offend him why would you then sin and sin again And a little bit more because you're always assured that he is good and he is faithful even if you are not faithful. And it is certainly true that the grace of Christ is not withdrawn because of the failure of the people that he has redeemed. However, a heart that would say something like this is scarcely the heart of a child of God. In verses 2 through 4, Paul points specifically to baptism. He says, Christian, think on your baptism if you are considering sinning more to get more grace. The cleansing of the blood of Christ. The work of Christ covering us from all of our sins. Changing us, making us look different. Paul says, think on that baptism. And its effect and its magnificent spiritual ministry. Not just the external water but the inner cleansing that is performed by the Holy Spirit. Think on your baptism. That's what he said last time we were in this passage of Scripture. And now this morning, Paul says, think on your union with Christ. Think on your union with Christ. We have two points this morning. I hope that we'll get to the second one. I've got more notes and more pages than I usually preach, so look out, friends. But the first point derived directly from uh, verse 5 is that we are united in his death. We are united to Christ 
in his death. And then the second point is that we are united to Christ in his resurrection. United to Christ in his resurrection. Union with Christ. For some of you sitting here this morning, this language is alien speak. It's something you're completely unfamiliar with. It's not something that we talk about casually in coffee shops. It's, well, maybe it is for you, but you might be a little different, a little strange. Others of you, you may be a Christian, been in the church for a long time, and you know the language of union with Christ. You delight in the theology of union with Christ, to receive his benefits, to be a member of his body. And it's a wonderful thing, but let me just simply ask you this morning, have you explored it deeply? Do you see it as a doctrine and as a wonderful truth that has all different sorts of shades and wonders and truths to tell to you? You see, this is a doctrine in diversity. It's a coin Yes, with two sides, but maybe five or six. And it's one that is wonderful and delighting to the hearts of Christians. And friends, I want to tell you that union with Christ is at the very center of the Christian faith. It is what sustains us. It is what saves us. It is what delights us and ministers to us continually in the life of a Christian. Some of you will know that this is basically the center topic of the research that I'm conducting. That the work that I'm doing, the the writing that I'm doing has to do specifically with this. And I would be very remiss. I would fail you entirely if I didn't share with you one of my very favorite quotes uh, from the subject of my research that has exactly to do uh, with this topic. Robert Bruce of Kinnaird, who I'm studying, he wrote... There is nothing in this world or out of this world more to be desired than that we be united with Christ. There is nothing in this world or out of this world more to be desired than we be united to Christ. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider union with Christ. And Paul has invited us to do that in verse 5. And we have the biblical language of union with Christ. And, and that's an encouraging thing. Sometimes we talk in theological terms and we think, well, that's very original. What theologian in an ivory tower came up with that sort of language? I just want to remind you this is biblical, friends. And the theology and the truth of our union with Jesus is derived directly from the scriptures. Paul says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him. For if we have been united with him. He doesn't even introduce the topic. He assumes it and begins to explain it to the Christians. And whenever we look at this, I want to stop for just a second simply because it is likely that most of you are at least learning in this sermon more about this wonderful truth. 
the word that is there translated as having been united with him. It's a single word in the original Greek. And I don't normally like to share Greek with you, but nonetheless, it's the word sumphitoi. It's used like one time in this form, and it's right here in this passage of Scripture. And I bring this up to you because a literal translation of this word, I think, helps us get our heads around union with Christ a little bit more. And it gives us really a picture to consider in our minds and our hearts. The word here translated in English, united together, that's some, that makes sense. When you unite something, they come together, that's plain. Uh, but in its original form, it, it literally means to be planted together. Okay, to be planted together, like two seeds or two plants. That they would closely grow together so that they grow up into one another. And I want to tell you, Christian, that union with Christ is not something that grows and progresses. However, it is something that is vital and living. But this picture of our union with Christ being like these two plants that have roots that go down very deep and that intertwine in a wonderful life together, that take their life from the same fount. They're drinking the same refreshing water, and being nourished by the same nourishment. It's a wonderful depiction of the closeness that Christians enjoy with Christ, an analogy that the words of our languages simply struggle to grasp and to get around. Union. Nearness and intertwined closeness with Christ Jesus. It's wonderful. It's spectacular. And then Paul introduces us to two aspects of union with Christ. And I mentioned a moment ago that if union with Christ is like a coin that has two sides, then maybe even it has five or more. This is not the full of the doctrine of union with Christ. There is so much more. You can turn that page over and over and over and over and over again throughout the whole of your Christian life and you will never exhaust the wonder of what there is to know as the Christian united to Christ. So these are just two things that Paul mentions and they're very, very contextually tied to the question of verse 1. The first aspect is that we are, as verse 5 tells us, United with Christ in a death like his. That we are united to Christ in a death like his. I want to ask you, friends, how do you think on your relationship to Christ? For some of you, you may think, if you think on this at all, your relationship to Christ is a Sunday experience. It's a performance that you do religiously here. You come into this building, you're in the midst of the people of God, you pray, you sing, you worship, you listen to a sermon, and you go home and six other days you're just waiting for the next Sunday. I hope that's how you anticipate the Lord's Day. You're just waiting on it. You're anticipating it. But maybe that's kind of it. Your time with him's here. 
For others of you, it's more regular. It's in the prayer closet. It's on a daily basis. It's in the depth of your heart. He's what you wake up to. He's what you go to bed to. But have you thought on your relationship to his cross? Very specifically, his cross. Now, I think if I were to encourage you this morning to take yourself and put yourself into the ancient world where you are standing near unto the Lord, maybe you think of yourself and you're a bystander and you're on the Via Dolorosa. You're on the pathway that Christ took to Golgotha. And you're looking on. You have the mind of a Christian, the heart of a Christian, and you're looking at him and you're thinking, oh, the sorrow of his sacred brow now wounded. Maybe that's what you're thinking and that's your heart. You're a bystander and you're looking on and it's a historical event and you relate to Christ and you love Christ in his suffering and in his humiliation. But maybe for others, as you come into that historical context, if I press you, you think of yourself and you're honest and you say, no, pastor, I'm a mocking voice. I'm one of those people, yes, by the roadside and I'm hailing insults because I'm a sinner and I'm full of sin and I'm looking on him with hatred. I'm despising him and his earthly visage, calling him names, standing at the base of the cross, wagging a head and flapping a cursing tongue. Or maybe even others of you think of your relationship to his cross that you're something like a surviving relative and you're at the reading of the will and that you know that Christ died for you and there's somebody that comes, maybe they're a lawyer, and they open this notebook and they say to you, well, your dearly beloved has now departed. They've died And here's the last will and testament. And the one that died is Jesus, and he left to you wonderful things. And uh, to you, uh, he left a, a whole chest full of gold. And to you, he left the house. And to you, he left to you, maybe, let's be more spiritual, the riches of heaven, the sonship, the adoption, the gifts. He gave you gifts to play beautiful music, gifts to preach, gifts to pray, gifts to encourage, gifts to be faithful. And you think on yourself in the relationship to his cross as what you get and get and you get things. But Paul wants us to know that our relationship to his cross is that we were united to him as he hung there with pierced hands and feet. You're not next to the cross. You're not at the roadside. You're up there with Him. That's what Paul wants you to see. Intertwined with Him, grown into Him, as a member of His body, naturally rooted in Him, on the tree, you're united to His death. The sufferings, the cursings, the hatred. It's not just that you're the one performing it, but you are in Him as He suffers and breathes His last. We are united with Him on the cross. We have union with Him in His death. And you may say, hang on a second. 
There may be a whole lot of things that I would like to have from him, but a death is not one of them. Death isn't what I signed up for. That wasn't what I was looking for in this teacher. I wanted truth and truth clearly. I wanted light for my life. I wanted encouragement. I wanted comfort. I want all this world of gifts and assurance and security. That's what you're looking for. Hang on a second, Pastor. You're saying something, and it seems like Paul's saying this too, that we have been united with him in a death like his. You must just be meaning like there's suffering in the Christian life. This is just the suffering of the missionary call. And we know, you know, you've heard missionaries talk about the suffering that they have. It's real. It's a fact. There are martyrs for Christ who have lost their lives. There are people that have lost so much for Christ. But friends, I just want to say simply to you, no, he's not speaking about missionary pain, suffering, or death. He's talking about the reality of the cross on which Christ suffered and died. And he is saying to you and to me very clearly, we died in union with him. We died in union with him. And you may be sitting and especially our visitors thinking, well, I've never heard a single Christian ever say anything like that. It's foreign. Believe on Christ and what do you get? You get death. Strange thing, odd thing, bizarre thing, biblical truth. That's what's being taught. That if you are in Christ, that on the cross you died in Him. And the thing that I want to tell you, friends, is that you and I had to die. We had to. And you say, why? And it's simple. Our sins deserved it. We deserved it. We deserved to die in Him. I do want to be clear. Paul doesn't mean that there were two bodies stacked atop of one another, but rather that the souls of all who would believe in Him were there in Him and united with Him and experiencing the death that was due to all of our sins. And he suffered it not only spiritually, but in his body. You and I had to die. And we are so closely associated with him that the punishment that we deserved, his flesh received. The gun was aimed at us, and he took the shot. Paul continues in verse 6 he says we know that our old self was crucified with him you see he's helping us he's giving us more light to this relationship our old selves not who you are now if you're a believing Christian but your old self who you were before the spiritual state of a person apart from Jesus And what does he say? He tells us more than that. Even in verse 6 he says, the purpose was that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
So he describes the old self, the former person, the person you were before Christ. And what does he say? He gives you a title. He gives me a title. He says, body of sin. Now that's, there may be a lot of things you want to say about your body. And in the world we live in, people say lots of things about their body and identify in 500,000 different ways with their own bodies. But I dare say not a single one of us want to say, yeah, look at this. This is a body of sin. What does Paul mean? He's giving a depiction of who we are, really, apart from Christ. From the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet to the tip of the, of the hairs on our heads. That every single part of us is touched with sin. That we are corrupt in every part of our being. A full corruption, Paul is saying. He's saying that old man, that body of sin was crucified in Christ that it might be brought to nothing. Now you have to look at that. You have to see this very, very clearly that what we're talking about here, the union with his death is that the very worst of our souls hung in him and were punished and were put to death. That's what Paul says. He goes and he repeats it in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, almost very same language. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. body of sin, the death of the old man. Paul goes on and he tells us why this has to happen. Why does this old person, all the old deeds, all the old taste, the old thoughts, the, the badness of who we once were apart from Christ, why does this have to happen? Well, he says, uh, says it very clearly uh, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the effect of all those old sins. It's not that we just did bad things or thought bad things occasionally, but we had a relationship with sin that was horrific. It was terrible. It was like slave and slave master. Sin owned us in our minds and hearts and directed us in our bodies and beat us and scarred us and affected us and changed us. It dominated us in every thought of the inclination of the heart of man to be sin and sin continually. It was total and pervasive. It was a slave master that was not just harsh, but brutal and exacting. Paul is saying the only way for you or for me to be relieved from that and removed from that bondage is simply by death. That slavery was total and complete. And Paul is saying in Christ... When he hung on the cross, that enslaved heart, soul, mind, person hung in him and was put to death. No longer a slave, no longer a relation to a slave master in sin, but rather set free in Christ Jesus. 
And you may be sitting and thinking, okay, pastor, this is good, deep, heavy theology. For what I understand of what you're saying, I gotcha. But how is this important, and especially how is it important to what you said regarding verse 1? The question of the Christian life, should a Christian continue in sin so that they can get more grace? And Paul is saying, you're not who you once were. You're not that old person. You're not full of that sin and overwhelmed with that sin and in chains to that sin. And Christian, you're thinking, let me sin some more so that I get more grace. He's saying, you don't have to. You can get grace and as much grace as you could ever want. As much of the love and the compassion and the kindness of the Father as ever could be imagined. That old man is put to death and you don't have to sin. You are free from it, Christian. The bondage is broken. The chains have been ripped apart. It's not just that you've been brought away from the slave master, but there has been death and there is a finality to that. You're never going back. Ever. You're free from sin in a lifestyle of sin. That's what Paul is saying. He says, following this in 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying... That sort of thinking, that sort of life, that sort of bondage to sin once was true, but for you, Christian, it is not any more. You have been set free. So what what do I want to say to you, Christian, in light of the text? Do you have a sin that really bothers you? And you've almost convinced yourself with, The fact, I'm just going to live with this for the rest of my life. Just give up on it. Just accept it. It's part of my identity. It's how I identify in the world as this or that other blank type of Christian. And it's always this fallen thing. You just fill in the blank. And you've just said, that's just who I am. I want to tell you, friend, if you're in Christ... You're actually free from those things. Wage war against that sin. That sin's not your master anymore. You don't have to obey it. You don't have to click your heels and walk in line and goose step to its cadence. You can say no and you can stop it and turn. Turn away from sin and unto Christ. You can live a life after Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and turn from sin. That's what I'm saying to you. You are not controlled or defined by your sin. It doesn't mean that you've attained perfection, nor does it mean that you'll attain perfection in this life, but it does mean that Christ has won a victory and it's something that you can stand on And that no longer are you Satan's boy, 
to be done with whatever he delights. You are Christ's. And you're united with him. Roots intertwined. Two distinguishable persons, yet inseparable in their relation. The Christian and Christ their Lord. Paul tells us another thing about union with Christ. It's not only that we are united with him in his death. That's one aspect, one side of the coin that continues to turn. But secondly, he says we are united, certainly, in a resurrection like his. Look at that, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Look then ahead to verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And here Paul's making good, logical, spiritual sense. We think on Christ, we think on the telling of his cross and his suffering, and we have a Lord that walked where we deserved and died the death that we ourselves should have died. On a cross, he was placed in a grave. He was really dead, three days dead. Why three days? So that he would at least be proven to be completely dead. And that after three days, what is it? We have some more to the story, don't we? A stone was rolled away. Christ was raised up and angels testified to it, women testified to it, apostles testified to it, a city testified to it, his friends testified to it, the world testified to the resurrected Lord. And he wasn't just alive for three days, but for many days and he ascended. And do you know what friends, the resurrected Lord remains alive and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul is saying that his death is not the end of the story. And if we were united with him in his death and we understand that fact of who Christ is and what Christ did and what happened to him, then we need to see him in the fullness. If we were united to him in the grave, likewise we were united with him when he stood on living feet at the door of the tomb with a rollaway stone. If the Christian has been united With him and the death of the old man, you and I have been born again, a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's hard news, strange news. Yes, united with Christ and have death with him. But in Christ, in his resurrection, what does Paul say? What should be expected of this aspect of our union with him? Verse 6. So that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You're living and you're not a slave anymore. There is no master over your head but a loving Lord with whom you are in union. That's what he's saying. He goes on and in verse 7 he says that the one who has died has been, in the original text, justified. In the English translation, set free. Declared righteous in the face of sin. Not only that you're not in bondage, 
but you can stand in memory of the old man and all of the sinful parts of your life and you can look it in the eye and say, in Jesus Christ, I have the love of God and he looks on me and calls me righteous and beloved and holy and his and child, son, daughter, and Christ calls me a bride. And then in verse 8, we have this wonderful promise that is ours through our union with the resurrected Lord that we will also live with Him. That we'll live with Him. I ask you again, Christians, if you were paying attention, where's Christ right now? He's living. And he's at the right hand of the Father in his humanity. In his ascended and risen humanity has been there ever since the day of his resurrection, breathing and rejoicing and seeing with human eyes and hearing with human ears and feeling with human hands. You say, wow, that's a long life. It's life eternal. The promise of being united in a resurrection like his to Jesus Christ. And where do I want to leave you? It is in the hope that Paul has because of this truth. Look back at verse 5. I want you to hear Paul's voice of hope. He says in the second portion, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It is a certainty to you, Christian. These aren't theoreticals. This isn't hypothetical. It is an absolute certainty that the Christian can cling to. That if we belong to him, we're not just back there in a life of sin, but we're with him in life. And we have a hope for a life that is eternal, that is bound in him, the one who sits in heaven and who will come again in life and living and victory and power, who you will stand upon this earth and look him right in the eye, the living and eternal Lord. So Christian, what shall we say? Will you go on sinning so that grace may abound? Or will you live in light of your union with Christ? The old things have passed and the new life is yours. And if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, then let me plead with you this morning. This can absolutely be yours by simple faith in him. Not the cleaning up of your life, not 15 different steps that we'll prescribe to you because we're the ones that know it all. But I invite you to put your trust in him, your faith in him, and own him as Lord. Let us pray together. Lord God of heaven, we praise you that we do have a risen Lord, a Christ uh, that knows our names and who loves us. Oh Lord, who is delighted to look down upon even this service 
who whispers our names in your ear, O Lord. O Father, through whom we have all the assurance of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom that is coming. O Father, we do pray that you would help us to know Christ and to love him. O Lord, to feel the reality of being united with him. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.